Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We are here today with Michelle Mitchell talking about her new book called Tweens. Michelle has spent the last few years researching the transition from childhood to adolescence, and her research is really pointing at this time of life that we call tweens as a distinct stage of life. The way that tweens think is different than the way kids think, and it's different than the way teenagers think. If we don't understand what is going on in the brains of tweens, we can overlook a lot of really important things. In this interview, we're going to talk with Michelle about the transition from concrete to formal thinking and what that means when we're talking to tweens. We're going to talk about emotions and specifically how we should talk to tweens about their big emotions. We'll cover the change that's happening in confidence as kids become tweens and the social comparison parts of their brains really kick into high gear. Michelle will share with us how to teach our tweens to use their compassionate inner voice as kind of a, a coach or mentor against their inner critic. We will look at some of the most common questions tweens ask about sex and puberty. We'll also dive into changing attractions and how to talk about same-sex attraction or all kinds of different attractions that tweens might express. Of course, we'll discuss technology, what to do when tweens are misusing technology, and if it's ever okay to take tech away, we're also going to look at body image and we're going to dive into some research showing that girls and boys are on different trajectories when it comes to the changes in their perceptions of their own body and their dissatisfaction with their own body. There is one very specific phrase we are also going to cover that we want to make sure we look out for and respond properly whenever our tweens use it. And we're going to see that there's a big difference in the way kids lie when they get into the tween years. There's a big uptick in lying. And there are a few things parents need to know about how to deal with lying tweens. Finally, there's a fundamental difference in the way tweens and parents think about friends. What is it and what do we have to know about it? That's all coming up on today's show. Michelle Mitchell is an educator, author, and award-winning speaker who has been named the teenage expert by the media and has been on the podcast multiple times. She founded a program called Youth Excel back in 2000 that delivers life skills programs and psychological services to thousands of young people and their families each year. 
and she's the author of quite a few books on parenting and the teenage years. We are very excited to have Michelle Mitchell back on the show today. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Andy, you know this is my favorite podcast, don't you? I say that every time, but it is so, so good to be with you again. We always love talking to you, and it's really exciting to see your new book on the way out called Tweens. I have been reading this over the last week, and really, really, I'm learning a lot. You've done a whole bunch of proprietary research for this book. You've surveyed tweens and their parents and put all kinds of data and results and real responses from your research in the book, which is so cool to see and really, really excited to dive into it. So good. Yeah. 1,600 parents, 600 kids I spoke to, and it was insane to get a little bit of peek behind the curtains of what's happening in people's lives. And I really think that the research sometimes only just scratches the data. And I I felt like it was only sort of scratching the narrative that we wanted to dig into with this age group. Yeah, it's interesting because we talk a lot about teenagers on the podcast and hey, teenagers, you know, they're different from kids and different from adults, but you are really making the case in this book that tweens are really their own age group and are different both from kids and from teenagers and that we need to understand really what's going on with tweens distinct from either kids or teenagers. Why do you think that is? Yeah, you've nailed that. I actually started writing a book for parents of tweens and teens because that's the typical narrative, isn't it? It's that transition into the adolescent years. But the more I looked at the really age-specific research and listened to what parents were telling me, I realised that this was a developmental stage in its own right. And I guess it wasn't that long ago that we hadn't given this a lot of attention in research. And I think research is only starting to dig into what's happening in the brain of a nine to 12 year old, as opposed to our teenagers. I mean, it's easier to study teenagers because the problems have emerged and we know exactly what we're going for. And the little ones get a lot of attention too, but I've only ever known tweens to live in the shadow of their big brothers or sisters or um, pretty demanding little brothers or sisters. You say in the book that the one big difference between tweens and teens is their desire to follow parents' lead. What do you mean by that? Oh, I love that. Endless goodnight tucks, routinely holding their parents' hand when they cross a busy road without giving it a second thought. I had a psychology clinic many years ago now, but I would hang out in the waiting room about three o'clock because it was rush hour and I loved it. But I remember a parent coming in with her daughter who was about 11, 12, and her mum was saying to me, oh, she's acting like a teenager already. She's almost a teenager. And I looked at this little girl. She had a big scrunchie in her hair. She had mascara-free eyes. She gave me this big beaming smile. And I thought to myself, yeah, almost, but not quite. (laughs) And it is that almost a teenager, but not quite. When they're a teenager, they tend to walk 10 metres behind you, don't they? But teenagers have this desire for togetherness that we can capitalise on during these years. They still think you're a superhero. 
even if it's like just reducing slightly, but they've still just think you the ants pants. Is that an Australian saying, Andy? The ants pants. No, we got we get that one in the US too. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I'm a fan. So I like that. And I really think it's cool how you're focusing on this age transition. And you talk about the cognitive changes that are happening during the tween years specifically. And one of the big things you keep coming back to in the book is this difference between concrete and formal thinking. So that kind of sounds like the same thing. What's the difference between the concrete and the formal? Yeah, this is like a a window into their soul to me. It's like a pathway to their heart. And after I've spoken in schools and I have a a little person, a 12-year-old, maybe a 10-year-old come and see me, I've got to find the quickest line to get to their heart in the shortest amount of time because it's a high-pressure situation. I've got people looking at me. I've got this little person asking me a deep question about their lives. Parents tell me that around about the age between 9 and 12, kids are asking more meaningful questions, all of a sudden they've got to stop and think. So they might come home with, you know, like one of those big moral dilemmas or questions around their sexuality. You know, when kids, little girls come and ask me, you know, is getting your periods like turning on a tap? They're actually thinking in a very concrete way. So let me explain the difference. Concrete thinkers, they really love using language, by the way. So we can dig into that in a minute. Tweens love language but they're rigid, they're concrete, they're literal. They link their new ideas to their existing ideas and they try and link them to their family's values. And this is this sense of togetherness. They really are relying on us to help them develop their logic. So if you've got a tween, if you're listening, if you've got a tween who comes home and needs to give you a blow-by-blow rendition of their day, it's because they're actually practising logical thinking. And when it comes to complex kind of problems to solve, they need us to help them join the dots between one idea and another idea because they don't so naturally do that. Now, when they get into more complex and fundamental thinking, which is more in the teenage years, they become interested in discussing really complex issues. They don't want to link new ideas to your ideas. They want to join the dots themselves and they're actually starting to try and piece the world together beyond their home. And they're starting to understand different points of view. So for the very first time, they're literally understanding the minds of others and putting themselves into the minds of others. And that period of time is when we need to ask more questions and step back. But the problem is this, Sandy. If we talk to our kids in too much of a concrete way when they're tweens, we risk talking to them like their babies and they switch off and get their back up if we go complex too quickly what actually happens is we lose them and they're looking for us to be the source and we're missing in action so we don't want to actually just leave the table too soon so how do we kind of like mix those two things together a little bit I like to call it a third pathway. (laughs) So there's concrete thinking, one pathway to their heart, complex thinking, and there's this concrete, then crossover with complex when I'm using both. I'm flipping between both. I'm giving them a concrete example. I'm asking them if I understand that. Then I'm thinking, asking them their ideas and maybe where they've seen that in the world. I like that. Yeah, that's cool. So that you're really kind of wherever their brain happens to be right now, because it seems like it's not the kind of thing that's such a firm transition that happens at one 
yesterday they were thinking concretely and today they're thinking more formally it's kind of going to be they're going to be going back and forth between these methods of thought really for a number of years and so. Absolutely. It's smudgy. Development's smudgy. And they might be developing cognitively very quickly, but other areas of their development might be lagging behind a little bit. So it is very much this big crossover period. And I think that's why we say they're almost teenagers, because we're starting to see these signs of glimmers of teenage behavior, like the back chat, the idolizing people older than them, wanting to trade hobbies, you know, like for newfound interests that their peers are doing. They might start taking a few more risks like lying to us. That We see these little almost teenager moves arrive. You write that we want our tweens to know there are no good or bad emotions only human ones that are triggered by our brain's response to perceived experiences. Wait a minute. What about sadness or anxiety or fear and anger? It seems like there's lots of bad emotions. Yeah. And this is a time where they can be really overwhelmed by their emotions. In a funny way, some of the parents that spoke to me said that as their children have gotten older, it's gotten easier because their kids have developed a few more coping skills, which don't you find interesting? Like when we look at the research, Andy, hey, we're talking about these teenage years being big, explosive emotions. But they get a surge of adrenal androgens, which are just hormones that sort of really rise up around eight years old. And they can come in pretty big gusts in our tweens' lives. And a lot of parents are like, what's going on? My kid's having this big meltdown over nothing. They're crying on the shower floor. You know, a little issue at school around friendships is just they're falling apart over it. It's a time where their emotions can be really confusing for them. And just like, I guess, building the walls of a house or building a container, there's a few core beliefs I really want our kids to know. And one of them is that all of those emotions are valid and real and to be really listened to and appreciated. They're signals and signs for our kids to actually take care of themselves. And isn't that a lesson that we need to lean into self-care when we're feeling overwhelmed? So uh, how do we make them feel or communicate that whatever they're feeling is okay. And especially if it seems almost kind of nonsensical or like way too big of emotions for the situation that's happening, don't we want to calm them down and say, hey, you know, chill out? Absolutely. Can I read you some statements from tweens themselves? Are you ready? This would just be really a beautiful thing to add here. I think when tweens get overwhelmed, we try and minimize it because we go, hey, kid, pull it together, especially a, a tween. When they're teenagers, we can smell and see that something's going on. You know, <laughs> we accept it a little bit more and we go, okay, they're acting like teenagers. But when they're like cute, got the pigtails bouncing around the house, it's a different gig. And kids express to me quite a strong desire or for us to understand that life wasn't easy. So they said things like this to me, you think we're okay, but we aren't always. There's a lot more bad things out there than they think and challenges are harder like schoolwork and problems. It's easy to get depressed as a tweener over a lot of things. 
at the time where everything's in our bodies changing, we're also getting dumped on with schoolwork as well. How many times have you said, have you hurt yourself? And this is already happening to me. And this is a kid who's talking about self-harm. So I feel like it's this time where parents are almost catching up with where their kids are at. And we'd sometimes like to suppress it and and just go, can you just go back to being an easy kid when that's not going to happen? I also want to just touch on, you talk about how confidence kind of fluctuates over the lifespan and research shows that how our kids feel about themselves follows a clear trajectory where when they're young, they tend towards really high over the top confidence that's kind of inflated. And when they start to get into the tween years, uh, it's kind of like, you know, reality check. And really that social comparison part of the brain starts to kick in to where, you know, they really start to notice like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not as, I'm not so good at this as I thought I was, or I'm kind of the one of the worst people at my school when it comes to, you know, whatever. And so, as our role as parents, when we see that kind of happening or, you know, are we trying to kind of help them sort of keep that confidence up or is it actually good that, Hey, they're more realistic now and they're not so delusional in terms of like their abilities on things or like what's maybe the most appropriate way to respond when they're sort of starting to maybe get discouraged or disillusioned a little bit with their views of themselves. I love this question. Parents start to freak out when their kids no longer believe that they are the most amazing human being on the world. And oftentimes we've told them that since they were like from birth. So all of a sudden they're looking around and going, hey, I'm actually not the best. And some people beat me in races. And they're starting to really be able to compare themselves a little bit more accurately to their peers. I think it's so important that we understand that that's developedly normal and what it's going to lead them to is an innate understanding of their blueprint, which I get so excited about. It's through those comparisons and it's through that feedback that our kids actually discover their strengths and feel compelled to dig into them. What 10-year-old do you know, Andy, that doesn't want to be the best at something? I mean, especially a gorgeous 10-year-old boys who they want to be, you know, if they're good at skiing, they want to go to the Olympics. But it takes <laughs> it takes us sitting with them in those moments where they realize they aren't that great at something and saying, hey, how does that feel? And that hurts. And when I realized or when I wasn't the best at something in grade five, I felt like that too. But you know that everyone has something about them that's pretty special. And you're on a journey to discover what that special thing is for you. Now, we know, like we listen to podcasts of 50-year-olds that that are like saying, you know, if I didn't go through those hard times, I wouldn't have discovered my superpowers and all the rest of it. But <laughs> these are CEOs who've made it. And, you know, like but these kids are in the thick of it. The really exciting thing about research is it tells us that the tween years are the very best time to switch on their potential, (laughs) which actually means that even amongst the comparisons and even amongst those sad moments, right in those tween years, they are also searching for that blueprint. And if we give them lots of opportunities to play and to try a lot of different things, they're going to more likely find those things that light them up in life. 
yeah, it strikes me that it's easy to kind of try to say like, well, what? No, you're, you're good at art. I think you're good. And, but also it is helpful to be realistic about where they are on everything and that those things can change too. If they want to get better at something, you know, it's also like, well, but do you love it? Are you passionate about it? And if you don't love it and you're not that good at it, then whatever, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe this one's not your thing, you know, but if you Absolutely. really love it and you want to get better at it, you could, you know, and. And let's pick up on the, the thing that you said, it can change. I mean, this age group is notorious for wanting to stop and start extracurricular activities. Like they're trying to find their fit and they're trying to find their thing. And I think there's a list of let's try not to's as parents that we need to lean in. Let's try not to be the expert on them. Let's try not to, you know, have their future mapped out until they're 30 years old. Let's try and make this time so explorative and make this time full of play and excitement so they can find what lights them up. Do you know that our kids can be good at things but not passionate about them? Some kids who leave school can be doctor material, but they can't stand the sight of blood and they don't like the smell of hospitals. So it's really important that they learn to kind of listen to their soul at this age. I think something that ties into this is you talk in the book about the positive versus negative voice that tweens can tune into in their head and the positive pieces might say, wow. I'm really good at soccer. The negative pieces might say, wow, um, I just, I didn't get the most valuable player award and I'm, maybe I'm not that good. But you talk about how there's kind of a compassionate voice that they can use to mentor the inner critic. How does that look and how do we teach them to use that? Yeah. The part about this that I'd really like to highlight is sometimes even within our own selves, it's almost this competition between the negative and the positive voice. And we're trying to drown the negative voice and we're trying to Oh, no, no, great. (laughs) Shut up. We're trying to lift up the positive voice and this, this positive voice almost bullies the negative voice into submission, you know. But I'd like to suggest that the positive can come over like a little character and I sometimes get kids to draw out these characters and actually speak to that inner critic in a compassionate mentoring way and that they can work together. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That your your fears and and your hopes can work together towards a common goal. You do a lot of talks with kids in uh, on different topics and they often have questions for you that they want to ask you and i thought you mentioned with in a few different chapters different questions that you get asked by kids and there's one you have a, a chapter about talking about sex and you have some of these questions in here that are the common questions you get asked about this well any stand out in your mind as kind of questions that we should be prepared for, especially with tweens who are going through that concrete versus you mentioned one earlier about does the period turn on like a faucet or how does that work? I love that. (laughs) Anything else that stands out as memorable kind of questions that might come out during these years? Yeah. And kids can appear like they think they're being rude sometimes. And oftentimes if they ask these questions in class, they could get into trouble. (laughs) 
And it's just so important that we understand that kids are coming with really black and white questions. Like, you know, this is a PG show, so I'm not going to, you know, but like kids will ask me like after the talk about where babies come from, like, so how long do you have to leave it in for? Like, I mean, it's, it's just a concrete question. And, and they've got nothing to sort of hang or correlate the information that they've heard. So they're asking these very concrete questions. And what they've picked up from adults is that some of those concrete questions are perceived as rude and then it shuts them down. Whereas I love, love being able to really lean in compassionately with that and really gauge where they're at, first of all, concrete or or more complex, and come and really answer those questions in a way that's not shocked, that doesn't overreact, that respects their intelligence and their curiosity. Because this is an age where their curiosity is heightened. And if we don't give room for those really black and white questions that are really like confronting, I don't know, do you remember your parents saying, oh, don't be silly, or, you know, not now, you know, but kids don't some of those things. We're here with Michelle Mitchell talking about tweens and we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I had a great talk to a mum whose eldest son was gay and her 12-year-old came out and said, I'm bisexual. And her eldest son said to the 12-year-old, you can be bi, Miley, but there's no sexual when you're 12. <laughs> and, <I> just, <laughs> oh. and, and it is, it's like they're trying to be 12 going on 25 and they're using all this <laughs> language. And, and we've got to really, I guess, not insult their intelligence or their feelings, but also help them be kids. Oftentimes our girls' bodies are changing against the, I guess, the cultural ambition of being thin. They're starting to, sometimes in the tween years, hold weight in preparation for their growth. And I think that can be a challenge for our tween girls as well. I meet a lot of uh, young boys who are just oblivious, but there are a few that are getting more conscious of their bodies as well. But I see it more surfacing as research suggests that it's in that transition out of high school when they have to mix it with the big men that they'll be conscious of maybe their lack of build in those times. Because they are developing more complex thinking, they're actually starting to put themselves in our minds a little bit more and they're getting a little bit more sophisticated with their lies. You know, like when they're little, they'll tell you, oh, I went to the moon at lunchtime and it was really cool. You know, like, <laughs> but as they're getting older, it's getting a little bit more sophisticated. They're seeing what they can get away with. I think it's one of these areas that I think it's really important that we make a mental note and go almost a teenager. This is actually driven quite a bit by development. And it's really exciting that I'm seeing my child work in a different way, but I've got to bring them back to some values and some truth in this as well. I tell you, it's not if our kids are going to see or stumble across pornography, it's actually when. And when they do in those concrete years between 10 and 9 and 12, it's so important that they're able to communicate with us. And that can be such a learning curve and a teachable moment right there where they're still open-hearted towards us. So 
You know, another thing I talk to parents of tweens about with it, when it comes to technology is making sure we have crystal clear agreements in our homes. It's not just a matter of, oh, tech's just a part of our life, free for all, go for it, because it can be a really dangerous place. But the flip side is we've got to have those agreements that we're crystal clear about and we know that we're comfortable with and our kids are clear about because I think our kids' expectations and even what they want to do online is so different than what we're expecting. They're just thinking, you know, the tech is fantastic and we're thinking maybe it's not. (laughs) We've got to negotiate this thing so everyone's on the same page. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.